Dueling Genre Productions presents. Oh my god, do you see that? When a freak accident strikes McKinney City, ordinary citizens are given amazing abilities. I can move things with my mind. Oh my god, I'm flying. I can fly. I can teleport and I can fly. Super senses. What, like Daredevil? We are just playing fast and loose with this whole science thing today, aren't we? Now, there are villains. Billy, when you have an arch nemesis, do you just kill them immediately? No. You tie the ropes just loose enough so that they can keep escaping. That way, when you finally do win the day, you can sleep well knowing that you rose to the challenge. Your brain works differently than other people's, doesn't it? And heroes. Leah Markowitz, Gwendolyn Allen, Jeffrey Gibson, Mindy Gibson, Simon Holt, Splendid, you're all here. I'm going to make you all into superheroes. Screw it. Let's go save the day. The Powerful. After I drain everyone here, McKinney City will be mine. I'm going to show this whole city what real passion truly is. And the underdogs. You're all imagining me as a singing, dancing chipmunk right now, aren't you? The people in that store need help, and we can help them in a way no one else can. We have great power, which means they're our responsibility. I mean, Jesus, what's the point of having five freaking Spider-Man movies if we can't even learn to do that? Geek by Night, an original podcast series about five friends running a comic book store with superpowers. You're really going to keep running a comic book shop while trying to be superheroes? It might not always be easy, but I think the world could use a few more underdogs. Available at DuelingGenre.com and podcast apps everywhere. Dueling Genre Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joe Dorowski. And this week we're talking about Lee, Evelyn, Regan, or Reagan, and Marcus Abbott from A Quiet Place. And joining our discussion this week is returning guest Todd Peterson. Welcome back. It's nice to be with you. So glad to have you guys on, and particularly to cover A Quiet Place. This is one that multiple uh, listeners have asked us to to talk about. I know for sure listener Grant and listener Missy have both asked if we were going to cover this, but I think there were a few others, and I just didn't get uh, the names jotted down. But we know this is one that when it came out, some people asked if we were going to be covering, and it seems like fall is a good time of year to talk about A Quiet Place. I don't know why, but it just it, it, it suits the atmosphere of fall, I think. Yeah, this is one that when it came out, I thought, I really want to talk about this on the on the on the podcast. And when you mentioned that, that it was on the in the queue, I said I'm in. Yeah, uh, so, and similarly, Todd Peterson, uh, I reached out to you and said, "Hey, we're going to be doing our Halloween special, which you've been on every year. Would you come on that?" And you immediately said yes. I said, "Would you want to double record a quiet place?" And it was in a very fast response that you wanted oh to double gosh. record and do a quiet place with us. Well, this has helped catalyze a decision. I've been trying to decide. Uh, whether or not to teach it in my screen aesthetics class. And one of my students in that class last spring, when I chose not to for a bunch of different reasons, he said, you've got to take a look at the screenplay. And he sent me a link to it. And it has all this really cool stuff um, about how they've kind of it did some unique and special formatting of the screenplay to handle the audio um, representation. And I'm like, that's it. I'm doing it. And then I got a little bit chicken and then I watched it again to get ready for this. And I'm like, I'm totally doing it. And I told my wife, I'm totally teaching this. 
it's going to be like the centerpiece film for the class. So <laughs> I am so ready for this. So for any listeners who aren't familiar, A Quiet Place is a 2018 film written by Brian Woods, Scott Beck, and John Krasinski, and it was directed by John Krasinski. It tells the story of a family trying to survive in a post-apocalyptic world where there are creatures that kill you if you make a sound. And it stars John John Krasinski as Lee Abbott, Emily Blunt as Evelyn Abbott, Millicent Simmons as Regan or Reagan Abbott, and Noah Jupe as Marcus Abbott. Um, I remember hearing the good buzz about this film when it was in theaters and everyone talking about how you have to see it in the theater because you're going to get the real theater experience. Like, like this is one that forces audiences to respect the theater. Um, and, and like, there just seemed to be like general amazement of how much the, the, the sound aesthetic of this film and the, and the need for silence, like commanded masses of humanity to actually be quiet in a movie <laughs> theater, which is something that we've been trying to do for <laughs> generations. <laughs> But I didn't get to see it in the theater. Uh, and so I finally saw it. Uh, I was down uh, visiting my brother in Texas. And he's like, he had just gotten the digital. It was right when the digital copy had come out. And he had it. And he's like, do you want to watch it tonight? I said, yes. And we grabbed some snacks. And in the first minute, like, I tried to eat an M&M. And I'm like, oh, that's transgressive. I can't. Yes. <laughs> During this film, I'm sorry to, to everyone that I, I ate a single M&M. And I, don't, I didn't touch a snack the rest of the Even though it wasn't a movie theater. It was just, uh, you know, us sitting in the room. Like, it felt really weird to do anything that made sound during this film. And I had a similar experience when I was writing the summary while watching the film and like clacking on the keyboard was like, oh, I wish I wasn't doing that right now, but I really got to write what's going on. And I went with my teenage daughter. We, the, the family kind of knew that we wanted at least I have three kids, uh, 17, 14 and eight. And when the movie came out, all the kids were like, we want to go see it. And we're like, man, we can't take the eight year old to this. It's just gonna be too scary. Um, and then as we talk about the film, there's even more reason why an older sister, a middle brother, and a younger brother as a family dynamic yeah. became a thing. It's like we just couldn't. It, 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 there's a whole – there's a really great paper on A Quiet Place in Birth Order, I think, um, that could be done. But – so we divided and conquered. My wife took my son and I took my daughter. And in the screening that we went with our daughter, the people behind us were rustling snacks Ugh. And she just about climbed over the chair on these people. Like she is the most mild and wonderful, sweet girl ever. But she was about ready to be like, who would even do that? Why would they even come to a movie theater and ruin it for everybody else? We spent our money too. Like she was in a rage and I was so proud of her. <laughs> I was so proud of her. It was amazing. So I, I saw this film with my dad just before um, he left. He's in a, on a mission in Japan right now. And it was like the one of the last days that we were together. And we said, oh, let's go watch this movie. And um, I don't think I moved a muscle during the whole film because we were on those big, comfy leather chairs in the theater. And if you move, they kind of creak a little bit. As it, it was just there was no way. I was stock still the whole entire film. Then the second time that I watched it, I've been telling my wife, we've got to watch this movie. And she's like, nah, I don't want, I don't know. We live in rural Michigan. It looks kind of a lot like what this film looks like. <laughs> and uh, eventually the other night she said, okay, let's watch. Oh, and she's pregnant. And <laughs> she goes, okay, fine. We'll watch this. And then she fell asleep. Like, what? Ten, like 10 minutes into the film. <laughs> And I was personally offended. I know. But then, so then, then a couple nights later, she goes, okay, we really need to watch that film again. So we turn it on and we're watching it. No, she watched more than 10 minutes the first time. Cause, um, 
anyway, it gets pretty intense. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll do the plot summary, but there's a point where there is no sleeping after this point. <laughs> and, uh, and we hit that point, but then she starts asking me all these questions. Like <laughs> she go, okay, what's tell me what's going to happen. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen. She's like, I'm turning it off right now. If you don't tell me what's about to happen. <laughs> and she did that for the whole entire rest of the film. Uh, so it was not, it was not the ideal viewing experience, but, uh, but respect she, the silence. Oh, she enjoyed the film. <laughs> she enjoyed it. All right. Well, some trivia about it before we get to that plot summary. A Quiet Place was produced for $17 million, which I think counts as a small budget film in today's Hollywood economy, um, or at least very modestly budgeted film. It opened to a $50 million weekend. Um, and I'd say that counts as a success when you put those two ratios together. Uh, and early projections for the weekend had been like 10 to 20 million. And then like the buzz just kept building for this movie. Um, they did a very smart thing where they showed it at um, – Oh, what's the Alamo draft house thing they do? Uh, I can't remember. But, but you know, we're, we're a lot of like very plugged into film culture online, uh, film geeks go. And they, they did a preview there and it like spread the word through like film Reddit and film Twitter that this was one that people were going to want to go see in the theater. It ended up grossing $188 million in the U.S. and $340 million worldwide. It has a 95% uh, rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And I just don't understand the 5% of those commercials. <laughs> You know what it is? It's 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 probably deaf people. Because, <laughs> so my my sister is an interpreter, uh-huh. and I told her the premise of the film, and she goes, "That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard." They would be the very first ones to die because nobody is louder than deaf people. Because <laughs> <laughs> they have no idea what. How much they have noise no idea how much noise they're making. Yeah. Yes. Uh, one of the characters is deaf and is played by a deaf actress, and yeah, the the everything about their motions and actions and steps needs to be silent. Uh, and so they do do like some explanations for how this is still silent. So like they have painted marks on floorboards that creak of like where it's safe to step. They've put sand all around on paths that they walk on. So they're always stepping onto soft sand, things like that. But yeah, there is still some, so, there's definitely some, some nits to pick about sound production. Yes. <laughs> and does, has, has no one ever passed gas is, is one that I see frequently. <laughs> well, and that's the thing about, uh, according to my sister, that's the thing about deaf people. <laughs> I don't really know. Uh, they can't tell sometimes. Anyway. Yeah. Um, Krasinski, who, uh, as we noted, was very heavily involved in this project. He was drawn to it, uh, because of the idea of parents protecting their children, he and his wife, Emily Blunt, who plays his wife in the film, uh, had just had their second child when he read the spec script and, uh, Blunt initially did not want to be in the film, but then she read Krasinski's rewrite of the original draft and said, okay, well, I need, I need to be in it now. <laughs> like, like everything is coming together. This feels like something special at this point. Um, and, and, <laughs> I don't know why this delighted me, this trivia. I don't even know why I'm including it, but part of the film's budget included hiring local farmers to grow 20 tons of corn. And I just love that little line item. <laughs> Can you imagine you're the bean counter at the film studio going through the film's budget? 20 tons of corn. We just paid for 20 tons of corn to be specially grown for this film. Got to fill up that silo. 
Yeah, there's a large silo of corn. Uh, the actors, other than Simmons, had to learn American line language. Uh, Simmons is the actress who who was deaf. Um, and the, I'm going to quote a little of something about what she said in Wikipedia about their performances. She observed the way the others used their sign language reflected their character's motivations. The father had short and brief signs that showed his survival mentality, while the mother had more expressive signs as part of her wanting her children to experience more than survival. Krasinski and Simmons' character uh, uh, said that Simmons' character was a little bit of the warrior princess, the black sheep in the family, and that she used signing that's very defiant. It's a very teenage defiant. So even though they're not speaking to each other um, and, and we're getting uh, any dialogue through sign language and, um, and and subtitles, there you still do sense like so much emotion and intonation in the way that these characters are signing to each other um, in, in very moving ways, <laughs> like very evocative and, and effective ways. I think uh, it was nominated for best sound editing Academy award. That was the only thing it was nominated for. And it didn't win. I, I mean, come on, Bohemian Rhapsody is what won. Sure. Fine. <laughs> but, Come on, best sound editing. Like, think of a film where you're going to think of the sound editing as being a work of art. Okay, everyone go. Do you have anything besides A Quiet Place in your head yeah. right now? How did this not win? Unbelievable. Um, the week that we're recording this episode, Krasinski wrapped filming on a sequel. Uh, at first, it was reported that it was going to be a parallel film about another group that was surviving during the uh, post-apocalyptic outbreak that's going on, or the apocalyptic outbreak that's going on, I guess. Um, but it's also been reported that Blunt, Simmons, and Jupe are all reprising their roles, so I don't know what to expect about the sequel. I, it's, I, I think they're wow. actually pretty tightly under wraps uh, as to what's going to happen uh, in that one. All right. Well, before we move on to the long summary, we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes, which we break down newly released films and trailers and give updates on our fantasy box office game. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. All right, Todd, uh, my voice is a little sore, and you kindly have agreed to read the the summary for us, so why don't you go ahead and take that away? Okay. Uh, Sightless alien creatures have come to Earth and hunt through sound. They have decimated human and animal life. If you make a sound, you're probably about to die. We see a family scavenging for supplies. The four-year-old, Bo, carries a toy he found, and the family reacts like he's holding a bomb with a lit fuse. Lee, the dad, gingerly takes it and removes the batteries and puts the toy down. His older sister, Regan, Regan or Regan? I'm... (laughs) I don't know how to pronounce this name, uh, who is deaf. Um, seeing the batteries are out gives him the toy, but Bo grabs the batteries as they're leaving the store. While walking home, Bo lags a bit behind as he puts the batteries into the toy and activates it. Lee races back to him, but a creature uh, kills a little boy before they can get to him. A year later, uh, Reagan is racked by guilt about her brother's death. We see the family lives on a farm where they've laid out sand paths that they can walk on silently. Evelyn and Lee, uh, the the parents, are trying to prepare for a silent childbirth. This includes attempting to soundproof a cellar room uh, and a crib with an oxygen tank to supply air to the crying uh, newborn. Lee has surveillance cameras around the farm and a radio system that he uses to try and contact other humans through Morse code. There's some obvious tension in the family, like when Evelyn sends Regan to bring Lee to dinner, she clearly doesn't want to even briefly be one-on-one with her dad. After dinner, Lee is also studying how to fix a cochlear implant for his daughter, Regan. Evelyn comes down, and they share, a, a, she shares an earbud with him so they can hear a song and dance. Evelyn takes her blood pressure and marks it on a calendar. Regan is about to go down to the basement when her dad stops her 
and tells her she can't go down. She insists she won't make a noise. Lee gives her a cochlear implant he's been working on, but she says they never work and won't try it. Evelyn is teaching Marcus math when Lee signs that it's time to go. Marcus doesn't want to go, but Evelyn says his dad will keep him safe and he needs to learn how to take care of himself and the family. Reagan wants to go, but Lee tells her to stay and take care of her mom. Uh, she runs to her room. She tries on the new cochlear implant, but it doesn't work. She packs a bag with something from her dresser and walks away. Uh, Lee shows Marcus where they have fish traps and explains that louder sounds like the river make smaller sounds like a fish flopping around safe. Evelyn is hauling a bag up from the basement when it snags on a nail and uh, and it pulls up so the, so the nail is sticking up um, like uh, Home Alone. Uh, Lee takes Marcus to a waterfall where they can have a conversation. Marcus asks if his dad didn't let Reagan come because he blames her for Bo's death. We see Reagan leave the rocket ship toy at the place where her brother was killed, but she's cut the wire to the sounds. Evelyn sits crying in Bo's old room. Lee says it was nobody's fault. Uh, Marcus asks if Lee still loves Reagan, and he says, of course. And Marcus says his dad needs to tell her that. While they're walking back to their home, they encounter an old man. Oh, this part is so scary. They <laughs> encounter an old man who is standing over a woman who has been killed by the creatures. This is the part where um, my wife was no longer going to sleep. Maybe for the rest <laughs> of the night. Uh, who is standing over a woman who has been killed by the creatures. Lee signals the man to be quiet, but, uh, but the old man screams and is killed by a creature. Uh, Evelyn's water breaks and she makes her way to the basement, but she steps on the nail. And she avoids screaming, but she actually, uh, oh, she drops a, a picture frame that falls and shatters, alerting the creatures. Um, and she's going into labor, which is a, a process that traditionally involves noise. Uh, Evelyn flips a switch that turns on red lights around their farm. A creature enters the house and hunts for sounds. Evelyn sets a timer to go off that distracts the creature, and she runs upstairs. She sinks into the bathtub as she goes into full labor, and the creature stalks through the halls of the house. Coming home and seeing the lights, Lee tells Marcus to go set off the fireworks they've prepared as a lure to move creatures away from their home. Marcus sets off the fireworks just as Evelyn screams. Uh, Reagan sees the fireworks and runs home. Lee has a shotgun and walks through his house and finds a bathtub with bloodstains. When he gets uh, to the house, and uh, he starts crying, but then he finds Evelyn and their newborn baby in the shower stall. Marcus is coming back when he hears a creature following him. He runs wildly through the cornfield into a tractor, which knocks him out. Uh, Lee takes his wife and child down to the sound say, That's one of the only moments of the film that's laugh out loud. <laughs> like, it's a completely silent experience. And then that happens, and there's just the, <laughs> like, guffaws just burst out of yes. people. Um, Lee takes his wife and child down to the soundproof cellar, but he hears a creature stalking above them. He puts an infant oxygen mask on the baby and puts it into its soundproof bassinet. Uh, Reagan is walking along the sand path when she sees the beam of Marcus's flashlight in the corn stalk. She bends down to look at it, and we see a creature come up behind her. She starts to get feedback in her cochlear implant, and the creature is pained and runs away. Evelyn wakes up and asks where the kids are, and Lee says he'll find them. She talks about the day Bo died and the guilt she feels that she didn't carry Bo home. She asks Lee, who are we if we can't protect them? Reagan finds Bo, and they hug. Uh, Lee comes out of the cellar. We see a broken pipe is leaking water. Uh, Marcus and Reagan go sit atop a grain silo and light a fire and wait for their dad. Evelyn wakes up to find the flooded cellar, uh, the, the cellar that she's in is flooded, and the soundproof bassinet is floating away from her, and she sees that there's a creature down in the cellar with her. And uh, she slides into the water and goes to get her baby and picks it up and then retreats under a, uh, a flooding waterfall. A hatch to the grain silo breaks, and Marcus falls in. The sound of this draws the creature from the cellar. 
Marcus is sinking into the grain and Reagan jumps in to push uh, the broken hatch toward him so he can climb onto it. It's like a, like a life raft on this sea of corn. Uh, the creature jumps into the silo, but Riggins' implant again drives it crazy with pain, and it breaks out the side of the silo. Evelyn leaves the flooded cellar and goes to the basement with the radio and surveillance equipment. Uh, the kids get out and hide in an abandoned pickup truck. A creature is attacking the truck, and uh, so Lee is there. so Lee has found the kids, and they're walking back to the house. And he says, "Go hide in the truck." And then uh, a creature is uh, is attacking the truck and Lee makes eye contact with his kids. He signs, I love you. I have always loved you. And he screams and the creature attacks him instead of the truck. The kids put the truck in neutral and it rolls back to the house. Evelyn, her baby and her two kids hide in the basement, but a creature finds them. Uh, Reagan sees her dad's notes about his research into cochlear implants and also trying to figure out the creature's weaknesses and realizes her implant emits a signal that causes the creature pain. So she amplifies the frequency with the radio equipment, which uh, causes the alien to writhe on the floor. Evelyn shoots it with a shotgun and kills it. They look at the surveillance monitor and see dozens of the creatures coming. Reagan grabs a microphone and turns up the volume on the speakers, and Evelyn cocks the shotgun and smiles. The end. Thank you, Todd, for reading through that. Sure. So it was a pretty well a pretty well written summary, I think. I, I, it is a, a pretty tight story, and like that moment in the woods once the, you said like this is the moment where uh, Betty <laughs> like <Yeah. this laughs> couldn't go by like the tension gets amped up, and every time you think like, well, this is as tense as it can get, they're like, mm, what if we flooded the basement with a crying baby? <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> you know, and, and had the bassinet literally floating towards uh, uh, this monster that's on the other and side. And then of the what monster goes underneath the water, so you can't see it at all. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's oh, a piece of, uh, of work. Um, I guess there are a few nits to pick that people point out. Like when you, I think it is a remarkably effective film and uh, it, it does its job very well, but there are always like a few of those questions, some like basic kind of like, well, why doesn't the family go live by the waterfall? <laughs> if it's safe <laughs> to have full conversations by the waterfall. <laughs> And uh, and you just kind of got to say I they chose not to and move on. <laughs> um, I'm not wild about the design of the creature. Like it's it's not bad, but it also doesn't feel terribly different from a lot of the other things that we saw before. And I almost want like everything else about this film feels like 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 very special. And the the creature design kind of feels like eh, it's a bit of venom, a bit of a xenomorph, <laughs> and. Yeah, you know, and and uh, you know, similar to, to other kinds of of creatures that we've seen in film. Uh, anything about you guys that uh, that you know, you just kind of like got to set aside real quick before you. We're going to talk about everything we want to praise about this film. Well, and I'm not. I don't want to undercut it, but I will. That's that standard uh, setup and pitch, right? Willing <laughs> suspension of disbelief. There aren't even monsters, and and when. I get into discussions about this film with that and people are all um, going neckbeard about like the monster. I'm like, now hold on a minute. It's that's not what you're missing the point. I think. And it's like, so there's this idea of hard science fiction. It's got to be logically consistent or whatever. I think within the world that they've got, it is for the most part super consistent and it makes sense because this is not even for me a film about monsters. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, and so for oh, yeah. me, no, like, it almost instantaneously quits being that. It's not even a horror film for me. Right. Not in the, in the, in a standard sense. It's, it's in some other place. So when people are like, well, what about, you know, uh, doesn't anybody fart or doesn't whatever. It's like, no, the, the premise is just there to kind of set something up. And it's, it's, it, it always um, catches me the same way of like, well, you know, there's no sound in space. Um, and so like, there wouldn't even be explosions. In fact, <laughs> there's not even any oxygen in space. So like what's going to burn. And I'm like, whoa, um, because the science fiction movie, the way you want it and accurate to physics is super boring in the movie theater. Right. <laughs> Soundless, lightless explosions, not interesting. And right. so uh, um, I try to get, get past that with people, but you know, some, for some people they're hung up on it and I'll tell you who the people that get the most hung up on it. People who don't have no kids. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, I think there's probably some truth to that because, like I said, like I'm not wild about the creature design. It certainly doesn't ruin the movie for me that the creatures is you know don't don't feel wildly unique in their visual appearance at all. It's just like nah, you know, nah, it's it's not my favorite thing about the movie because there's a lot of other stuff that's my favorite things about this movie <laughs> that, yeah. that really overshadow uh, those. I will say the only other thing that I'm kind of like. Eh, you guys have had young kids. How good are they at, at battery replacement in your experience? <laughs> oh, ter- that, that little boy could, would have, the way that it would have happened is he would have been frustrated that he couldn't put the batteries in. He would have said, dad, put the batteries in. And then the monster would have come in. And then the monster would have come in. <laughs> yeah. that's, the, that's the only other, like when I stop and think about it, like, oh my goodness, how many batteries have I had to change? Where it's like, they're right there. Just, just dad. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with, with both of you. I think if you want to, you know, get out your magnifying glass and your neck beard, then you can, you can go to town on, on some aspects of this film. I like that phrasing there. But, <laughs> but honestly, honestly, like the design of the monsters never even crossed my mind at, at that point in the film. I, I, it just it, it it's I, I'm I'm with Todd Peterson on this. It's not a monster film. <laughs> yeah, it's a film about parents and uh, children and relationships and. I, um, yeah, I think one thing why I mean that's I I just I, the thing that I love the very most about this film is the this depiction of um of masculinity and fatherhood that I think is rare, <laughs> uh in in all of popular culture right now. I, I think one reason why I've always kind of thought about the design of the creatures is because I didn't see the film in theaters, but I saw on a couple of entertainment websites, articles that were debating the design of the creatures. So I was kind of like, well, what's yeah. this design of the creature going to be? So like my expectations were like calibrated to like, Ooh, like, uh, and I was only seeing the headlines. I didn't even go read those articles cause I hadn't seen the movie yet, but I think it like planted mm-hmm. in my head, like this, this little seed of like, Oh, what's the creature design sure, yeah. going to be? But I have a theory let's, let's about that aside and talk about. The, oh, go ahead, Todd. Let, let me let me say I reject those arguments and then um, enter right into one of those arguments. I think that the design of the monster is a little bit tactical. Like you said, hey, it's a little bit venom. It's a little bit xenomorph. I thought that it was a lot uh, Demogorgon from Stranger Things. It had that feeling. Yes, mm-hmm. and, and so when I was rewatching it today, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, this is really um, – 
you know, its limbs look like a, a bug from Starship Troopers, kind of, right? It's, it's sort of insectoid. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, wait a minute. They're designing this monster to be transparent, to be not thought of. Like if they'd come up with some groundbreaking new monster design, like Geiger's um, um, Xenomorph from all the alien stuff, right? You, you, would be, you would be like, oh, I'm going to really zero in on this. I think we're not supposed to think about them. Because they present like them idea. early, they present them in full light, and that's something that I, I read in a number of interviews with the filmmakers. It's like, yep, uh, there's a great interview, by the way, um, because one of the wonderful things about this film is it's a female cinematographer, which almost never happens. And she's wonderful in the work that she does on this film. But she was talking about like, hey, you know, what about the decisions to shoot these monsters essentially in full daylight for most of the occurrences until we get to the end of the film? So there's a lot of interesting things on that, but I think yeah. we're supposed to, it's supposed to kind of be like the, the, the crystal goblet. We're not supposed to be thinking about that monster. And so the monster was designed in a way to keep us from thinking about it where we yeah. do get really good look is on those interior things. You know, it looks like an, uh, a gull and we see that it's like all eardrum and all that mm-hmm. other kind of stuff. I think that those close-ups really gave me a sense of like, Oh, well here's, here's how an auditory, um, hunting monster might evolve. Um, but I just kept thinking, cause I have a kid who's got, um, like some sound, um, sensitivities. And I think about the mm-hmm. way that he behaves in that environment. What would it be like to be a monster that sensitive to sound? It would be like the only great part in the, um, Henry Cavill superhero movie where he Superman's a kid. <laughs> And he really just sort of yes. can't control the auditory uh, yep. input. Mm-hmm. I would think these monsters must be insane listening yeah. to all this noise, unless they had this massive ability to differentiate the the sort of audio landscape. And, we, and, and so, so if, when I crawl into a pocket, it's about that. Like, what has that monster done to evolve to where it hears some stuff? You know, like they said, small sound safe, big sound not safe in that discussion at the river. Mm. How, how did the monster evolve to where it's like, yes, that water film, waterfall must be agony for something with hearing that sensitive. Anyways, the, I, 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 I thought a lot about that recently. I'm, uh, I'm totally on board with that interpretation. <laughs> Sorry, I just dumped. I'm like, I'm not going (laughs) to... I was (laughs) trying to uh, help out a voice. No, that's... (laughs) um, I like the idea of the monster being transparent. It really is. It's just not what the film is about. Oh, yeah. So let's let's start talking about what it is about, uh, which... Um, I think there's a lot of really interesting threads that get woven together very well in terms of ideas of communication, ideas of family, parent-child dynamics, uh, spouse dynamics, um, the idea of uh, community and like what's what's worth living for. Like all the all these different ideas uh-huh. are explored, um, and individually, I don't think any of those ideas are are terribly unique, but the way they get presented in this particular film and the skill and the craft that's on display and telling the story in this setting with these actors and, you know, the cinematographer and the sound design, like it becomes something that's very special to, to see. Yeah. I just, um, the, the thing that's amazing to me is how you can have, um, first of all, and this is like a pretty, 
banal argument, but um, or observation. There's just no talking in this film. <laughs> it's very quiet for a very long time. And yet you know exactly who the characters are. You know exactly what their motivations are. Uh, you understand clearly what's going on. Uh, you understand the relationships between them. Um, and, uh, you know, unless you're pregnant and exhausted, you're not going to fall asleep during this essentially quiet, silent film. Um, it's it's an astounding piece of storytelling uh visual storytelling and cinematography but also the way that they use um these very short conversations to uh, convey loads of information so when uh when when emily blunt is teaching her son math and then the dad comes and says we've got to go and the kid says i don't want to go and you can see the fear on his face and she's saying your father will protect you um you're going to be safe and I need you to go and learn how to do this because I need you to take care of me when I'm old and gray. And I can, I, I can see that image of her, like her facial expression when she does it uh, is so, it's so perfect. And the, what she conveys to him in those, you know, it's probably 10 seconds of 15 seconds of dialogue, maybe at the most. And and yet it's uh, it just carries so much weight. And then the conversation that they have at the at the waterfall and the moment when um, when they get to the house and he sees the red lights and dad just starts running with the boy. And then he says, you've got to go do the go do the Fire. fireworks. And the kid says, I can't. And he says, you can do this. Uh, <laughs> like, you have to do this. You've got this go. And then the kid goes and like at that point, I'm just a mess. Like I'm just an emotional mess. <laughs> And, um, you know, you think about like, uh, like the great speeches in, in films, the, the gladiator speech or the, the Braveheart speech or something. For me, I think about this dad signing three words to his son. You have to do this, go. And then the kid goes like that carries the same, uh, the same kind of emotional weight as these big, uh, flowery speeches, you know, uh, Aragorn at, at the gates of Mordor. It, it has that kind of a feeling to it, and yet it's all done so simply. Um, it's I think that that's one of the really brilliant things about this. It's a I, silent I say, like, film, essentially. Yeah. Yes. And, and so much information gets conveyed. Like, for me, the scene that stands out for, like, learning so much about uh, the, the character relationships is in the basement when he's working on the cochlear implant and then his wife comes down and gives him an earbud and they dance together. It's yes. like so much depth of emotion <laughs> was added to like make these characters feel real and lived in, in these roles that so many films like, like how can it happen so quickly in such economy of visual storytelling in this film and other films have like characters come and go and I couldn't care less and I don't know anything about them, but they, you know, they, they took the time and care to you feel the love they have, which some of this is going to be that it's a real husband and wife that, you know, work together on this film, but, but there's something that feels so significant about that relationship with the husband and wife, but then also the, the father that is, desperately trying to help their child and doesn't quite know how to do it, but is doing every, you know, everything that's in their power to try and improve the situation for their child. Um, and you get that in what, like 30 seconds of screen time, that, that little sequence. Yeah. No, it's just, and I know that this was a rhetorical awesome. question, but I think I have an answer to one of the uh, questions that you had kind of in the middle of that, which is like, 
like, how does this do it? Like, how does this work? And I thought about that a lot on my rewatch this morning and it's specificity. Mm-hmm. It's at, at every point, every choice that it can possibly make, it is specific. Hmm. And you can you and I think that that's what helps us see this. It's like, yes, we can extract and think generally about it. And I, I like, I think the rest of us. I thought so much about my own parenting life. Yeah, but none of the details, like zero of the details, of my life is their life. But because hmm. it's so specific, I don't know. I it was. I, it's it's um transformational the way I felt like I I just able to understand that everything. I guess the only thing that's in common is my wife's favorite song is Harvest Moon. (laughs) And lately my 14 year old son has been learning how to play it. And she says, every time Isaac plays that, it just makes me feel crazy. And I said today when they, when that scene came popped up, I was thinking about you. I was thinking about Isaac. I was thinking about all this other kind of stuff. And so again, because of that specific moment with that specific song, because all of the things that, you know, his workroom with all of those newspaper clippings, the whiteboard where he's kind of working, it's it's sort of this weird horror movie version of a crazy wall where he's just trying to work Uh through and solve the problem. All of those things made such sense to me, but um, I'm scrolling through the script right now. Uh, I have a PDF of it up. And the script is that specific as well. And it's so weird to read a script that has no dialogue. It's like all stage directions. (laughs) It's everything. It's such an interesting read when you're thinking about it. And and I'm thinking about it because I I have a future where I'll probably be teaching a screenwriting class um, within a year or two. And I'm just starting to think about which examples of the form are there. But I had to scroll 10 pages before there was a line of dialogue. Yeah. Which um, Krasinski did the final rewrite and he's in a different role as director slash, you know, polishing yeah. the, the final screenplay than, you know, what a, what an initial screenplay would look like in terms of the level of detail uh, that you get in this um, from what you're describing. It's page uh, but 33 it when it says, <laughs> and it even says, this is the first vocalized sound we will have heard in the movie for exclamation points. Wow. <laughs> and what is it? What is that line? Is it when he's talking at the river or is it, is there anything before that? It's um, at the waterfall. Yeah. And it's when he says, let me, uh, he's like, whoo. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he signs to him. Hey, I want to show you something. Let me yeah. It. There's a couple of times earlier than that where um, when, while they're signing they're they're like mouthing, almost whispering. Right. I mean, you can hear a, a few things, but yeah. Yeah, it's four. Um, it's four shots earlier. Uh, John Krasinski signs. I want to show you something, and then we get to that thing, and it's the first thing. But it's so amazing because yeah, the the script even tells you with <laughs> with four exclamation points. Yeah, this is such a big deal, and it's all it's bold. It's like. <laughs> Well, like the soundscape of this film, I remember the, on the rewatch being amazed at how it's only a few minutes into the film when the toy uh, robot makes its beeps. And it already just feels so wrong to have those sounds because we've been trained that quickly by uh, the choices that have been made by the filmmakers as to 
or, you know, what this world is and um, how it's, how it's supposed to function. And to hear that electronic sound, like it, it, it's again, like it's only a few minutes in the film, but it's already panic inducing. Like, Oh no, Oh no, Oh no, Oh no. Uh, (laughs) And I saw a short video with the sound designers talking about the silence sound that they created. And if you kind of, Hmm. if you've seen that and you go kind of rewatch or re-listen to it, you can hear it. Like they have, a sound, a silence they created for when Reagan doesn't have her hearing aids in. She has a, mm-hmm. there's a silence sound for when she does have her hearing aids in. There's a silence, the silence of nobody is making any noise. And they said they had so many different kinds of silence because you can't just like drop it to nothing. Yeah. There, there's all, all <laughs> there's all of these, and it's not exactly their words, but they're these ambiences that they need to create. And there's some things where they actually really shift your attention with so much calculation by giving us one of these different silences over another. And that was a really, that unlocked the film for me. So when, when I'd seen it in the theater, it was without all of that kind of extra stuff. And then I kind of tried to do some learning about it. And then it made subsequent watches like, Oh my gosh, it would be really interesting to watch it. Um, with the sound off and I made to try this stunt in class when I teach it so that the, so that yeah. there is nothing. And it's like, is this the same? Yeah. And I think that people get a chance to do it. I would also like to um, watch it slash listen to it with headphones, mm. which I haven't done yet. So I, I just had two thoughts. One is um, my other one knit about this film. <laughs> I don't understand where that nail comes from. (laughs) (laughs) I thought about that. It's definitely check off the nail. Like the second it's up, you're like, well, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) I wonder if it would make too much. Do you wonder if it would take too much noise to take it out? Well, yeah, but even just like where in the, in the, like, why is the nail sticking, the sharp part of the nail sticking up on that part of a stair is, is a bit of a conundrum. Yeah. So anyway, that was, that's, that's like my jokey thing. My serious thing is, um, I I love what you were saying about the specificity of this and how uh, the specificity resonates with us, even though, um, you know, none of us are living in a post apocalyptic world with, uh, with sound hunting monsters. Um, it reminded me of a, a conversation I had with a Spanish author and he was telling, he said um, the anthropologists and the social scientists, they, they go from the general to the specific. So they look at trends and graphs and statistics. They do surveys and then they try to tell us something important by, by starting with the general. Um, and that a great, a great novelist starts with the specific and isn't interested in telling a big story. Like no great novelist says, I'm going to write a great novel about the Spanish Civil War. Um, He he said, you know, a great novelist says, I'm going to tell a story about this guy in this place doing this thing in these circumstances. And what comes out of that is something that people are uh, better able to connect to. And I think that that's what you're, uh, what you're pointing out here is um, it's, it, it, it also reminds me of the conversations that we've had about, um, Oh, Steve Jobs and like designing the back of the computer to look as good as the front of the computer or his dad, you know, the, the back of the bookshelf should, should be, should be designed with the same amount of care as the front of the bookshelf. And this seems to me like a film where everything has been 
really carefully done, even uh, even if it's just going to be on screen for a second. Yeah, or I, even if it's you know the the difference between one kind of silence and another kind of silence. Um, listener Tess, I uh, Tessa, I put a call out on our Facebook fan page, and uh, Tessa had mentioned that her dad is a former fa- farmer, and there are a few things about how farm work that bugged him. Like he said, the corn rows are too straight to have been hand planted. There had to have been machinery that did that. And if a corn silo bursts, it bursts. You don't just get a plume of corn. Like the whole thing is, <laughs> is gone. And, and he's like, and like those kinds of things niggle at, you know, niggle at him as a viewer. But then she said, it's kind of like a recent Poe episode where we talked about Poe's unity of effect. we talked about that with uh, Cassandra in our discussion of um, mask of the red death where Poe's like every, every choice in telling a story is about what is going to make, the right effect you have the right effect on the mm-hmm. on reader for poe like what's going to weave the spell over the reader and sometimes that may mean there's a plot hole that the reader, writer's well aware of and they just don't care they're not going to acknowledge it because they're they're going to make this other choice over here that's going to put us you know uh, create that unity of effect for the reader and make them feel exactly what the storyteller wants you to feel and yeah, yeah there's these things that we can nitpick about some of the world that has been established here but on the whole i'm feeling uh, because of these deliberate Mm -hmm. specific choices that have been made i'm feeling exactly what the filmmaker wants me to feel at every moment of this film and it's masterful and i get swept up and i'm pulled in um and it's not till like hours later that i'm kind of like well why didn't they go stay by the waterfall? Doesn't matter. The nail, nobody is thinking, where did that nail come from? Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's like one of those things. I, I, I feel like sometimes when I've got my head in something, I magnetize to it. So we were doing some work in the backyard, my wife and I today, and she came up and she said, where's a hammer? And I said, what? She said, I just snagged my shoulder twice on the same nail. And I'm like, Oh, Hmm. And so I like went right back into the, that section of the thing. And I said, this is just representative of those dumb things, like the neglectful things. And my wife just experienced it. And, you know, of course there were no sound hunting monsters. So she could pound the heck out of that thing. And there was nothing, nothing to worry about. But I just started thinking about like, you know, again, whether that was exactly the thing or not exactly the thing um, and whatever. And so I think that's it. The corn thing was interesting to me. Because of what you said uh, in the beginning about, hey, here's some trivia. They had to get all this corn. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, nobody's going to go tear up a field and plant it six months ago randomly in order to get random rows of corn when everybody would do this. And so there was, you know, some sense of it. But I didn't do the math. It's 470 days, right? 470 something days. Yeah, because we're given that's the only hint we get is uh, about passage of time, you know, is is it's like days since whatever yeah. the event is. So like, it's when really they only keep, one like, and a half years that could still. Maybe that corn just stayed in the ground. <laughs> I, well, again, I like this is not going to ruin the movie for me in any way, shape or form. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, about the corn I, just, <laughs> I just did math and it's only one point two nine three one years. <laughs> yeah, yeah i don't know math math trumps <laughs> but um eb white this maybe we can segue on this eb white todd max said that similar thing that you just said don't write about man write about a man yeah and i suppose that you could sort of broaden that out don't write about 
uh, people, write about a person. Right. And that feels like this. Don't write about families, write about a family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And don't write about the, you know, alien apocalypse from sound hunting demons. <laughs> you know, like, like, so I think some, sometimes other people can get hung up on like, well, why hasn't the military done X, Y, or Z? Or like, where did these yeah. creatures even come from? That's absolutely not the story that's being told right now. <laughs> and, and, so I will circle back know, I, on this. My big gripe right now with all large scale um, event films like Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff is that everything is about the universe beginning or ending. And I want small stories. I would well, still that, yeah, love we, to see superhero stories. Yeah, like think- the Ant-Man film kind of resonates because the final fight is a father protecting his daughter in her bedroom. You know, right. and that's different than all the other Marvel films. And it makes it stand out in the Marvel universe, but it's also kind of satisfying to see a Marvel film that's tell it, you know, has different stakes. Yeah. And, and so when it, when crime fighters were like crime fighters, right? Like somebody stole somebody's purse or somebody broken into a jewelry store and ran off with some stuff. And the superhero does this kind of like the things that Mr. Incredible is doing in the beginning of the Incredibles, right? Just like, mm-hmm. uh, whatever that's the, that's the scale I think I'm more comfortable with. And so even though this film is, you know, it's obviously some kind of global, um, catastrophe that's happening it's not talking about whether or not they're going to save the planet it's just about whether or not he's going to save that baby right or the wife or the two kids in the truck it is and and those are the decisions i think i can only they're the only ones i think i can think about anymore i can't think about thanos stuff anymore (laughs) it reminds me of the that quad own film um children of men yes where the you know nobody can have any babies and the youngest person is 20 years old or something and it, it's this you know crazy apocalyptic situation but it it really is just a guy has to get the pregnant lady to the boat and that's that's what makes that film compelling uh so i I think we're still talking some about the big ideas in this film. And I had put out on Twitter, I just said, if you had could sum up the themes of this film in, uh, in, you know, in a tweet, what would you say? And there were some snarky responses <laughs> about some of these nits that we've mentioned, but there were also some really good ones. So uh, at just Josh Allen, who is uh, a writer. I know he just had a, a short story collection of uh, scary stories for, for middle grade readers just published called out to get you. Um, but he said, uh, it's a story about the links to which loving parents will go to create normalcy for their kids, even in an absurdly abnormal world. It's about how loving parents forgive even the biggest mistakes their kids make and sacrifice everything to give their kids a shot at well-being. And when you you mentioned specificity, like some of my favorite moments of the film is about how are they going to try and have normal moments in a world where sound can't be had. So things like the felt box for uh, games where, you know, mm-hmm. and using felt pieces for Monopoly instead of plastic pieces, um, you know, like it's again, like really brief moments of the film, but it makes the world feel uh, more significant and more lived in um, to have some of those, uh, those attempts to force normalcy on these kids who have no chance at a normal life in this world. Yeah. I, the thing that, I mean, I don't know if we're, are we, are we getting close to closing arguments here? Uh, we we have about ten more minutes at, at most here. Okay. So, yeah. Well, um, uh, I, I saw you had a note here for ex- expectations for a sequel. I have no idea where this goes. <laughs> yeah, and I, I like I'm not 
I had said like, are people going to want an explanation for these creatures? I kind of don't want an explanation for the creatures, but I think that's where a lot of urges for a studio asking for sequel would be like, you know, let's, let's get some backstory going. I don't want that myself. I'm, I'm fascinated about the idea. Cause I, on my most recent watch, it's in, in the context of knowing they were going to work on a sequel. I originally applauded it by kind of shutting this down and saying, cool, this is going to be like one story. Boom done and we don't have to deal with some sort of franchise emerging but then i started thinking wait a minute there are other people in this world we've seen two of them we're getting a sense of what's going on if they figured out how to beat these things would this family go we need to go help other people with what we just learned how can we weaponize the hearing aids and you know, and all that other kind of stuff, because I think they're like, we might be able to get something normal going again. If we can, yeah, if we can share. I could see a few options where it is like another group that's trying to survive. And the family kind of comes in at the end of, you know, a, a moment before the final act and like rescues them. And then the final act is like them going off to form an actual community somewhere with the knowledge that they have about uh, the ability to repel these creatures in some way. Um, but I, or, you know, does it just jump ahead five years? Like, there's a lot of options. Um, I just hope it maintains some of the, the magic that this film had. <laughs> in, yeah. In I, I mean, in the in the right hands, it, it could be really could be really great. I'm thinking about the um, the Planet of the Apes trilogy, the, the good one. <laughs> the new one. And just how how much those films evolved. The, I mean, if you if you can compare the f- the first film about how Caesar becomes you know intelligent, compared to the last film, it's it's hard to imagine that that's you know that it's the same thing, right? Uh, the the films change so much, the characters change so much, the situations that they're in change so much, and yet there's still this kind of continuity through it. They could do a lot of um, really interesting things, and I think that. Uh, depending on how they want to deal with time and space and where where people are where people are moving to and and who's in different contexts they could do um i mean they could really change the, the whole it, it could be a completely different kind of a film and if it's done well it could it, it could still work out i just don't i i, I don't know I, I, <laughs> that's why i don't get paid to do this kind of <laughs> stuff mean, i've been th- i've been thinking a lot about transmedia stories and like the expansion of franchises. I've been writing a paper about star Wars and transmedia and stuff and, uh, and efforts to expand star Wars into different mediums and genres that sometimes get rejected because it loses the star Wars ness in order yeah. to meet the demands of this other style of storytelling. Um, and so like the, a quiet place, like, like the essence of a quiet place right now uh, are the things that, that resonate is, is the sound, like the soundscape, the world that they've, they've created of silence. And then also these themes of family and community. And I think you can take those two things and tell a very different story that would still feel like it fits within this world of, uh, you know, that's been established in, in, um, in a quiet place. But if it is suddenly in a world with tons of conversations and everyone talking, like it's just going to not feel right. It's going to feel off. And I understand that like, there's the, the need to tell something different, but it also has enough familiarity that it feels like it is of a piece with a quiet place. So I finding that balance is going to be interesting to see how, how, how do they 
you know, determine where that balancing point is and how successful are they in reaching it is, is really the question more than like, what is the exact plot? I think. Well, I don't want it to sound too self-serving, but my last book was something where I was thinking through as a storyteller, how do you create these sort of narrative intersections? And it's, it's based on these kinds of things that happen, you know, I, I guess on couches and dorm rooms all over the place where people go, man, like think about like, every life intersects with another life where somebody's the main character of one narrative, but they run into some people who are secondary or minor characters in another. It's reflections that have come to me, like thinking a lot about, um, uh, you know, a great uh, painting by Bruegel of Icarus falling into the sea way, way, way behind all the other things that are going on in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. And how do we get like a decent perspective? And so, What's so fascinating to me about the possibility is a world has been built and obviously other things are going on. And it's, I think it's making me ask the question of what other things are going on. How might Emily Blunt's family, what's left of it, become the minor or secondary characters to some other major story that was going on that was different, that we don't know about, that was unexpected? But how can those people walk into that story as a continuation of their own story and then participate that because isn't that what happens in our, that's what happens in our families, right? There's two people, they're living their lives, they intersect and now they're living a life together. And Mm if it, you know, it happens in relationships where you lose somebody like they did in this film, what happens when you move on? Krasinski's story is done. His family story continues and it moves on. And I, I think that's just really, it's maybe the realest part of this kind of storytelling and a beginning, middle and end is ultimately false if we try to compare it to the lives we lead, because, you know, there's persistence in our lives. And if you've got a cosmology that says, Hey, there's life before we got here, there's life after we got here. This idea of cutting stories off at any point in time is really almost nonsense. So I I just love this kind of stuff. I think it's really, really interesting. Um, and it may, like I said, I think just a, a couple of minutes ago, it feels more authentic to have a story structured this way than to have something sort of wrap up nicely. I know other people think differently. <laughs> I just, I think it'll be, I'm really interested to see where they go with this because I'm sure that there's a temptation to just do what they did before. I mean, like we have this recipe for success. It's just, you know, tell a story about a different family and, you know, maybe they run into each other later or something like that. But I would, I, I, if I were talking to whoever's, you know, in charge of this project, I would say, don't close yourself off to the possibility that, you know, maybe circumstances are uh, more different than, than as an audience, we assume like, you know, maybe, maybe other people have found completely different solutions to the problem. Maybe there is a family that just lives by the waterfall. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and they, they will still have problems and there will still be danger, uh, but it won't be the exact same thing. Um, and, you know, maybe as time goes by, they do find some solutions to some of the problems. I don't think that they have to feel like they have to follow uh, the same script or, um, or the exact same formula. I think that they can still do really interesting things uh, by, by broadening out a little bit. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and it's just the like, how do you still make it feel like the world that has been made while telling that new story? And I, th- I think we can all like rattle off some specific examples of of things that are too much of the sameness from one uh, yeah. story to 
equal and then ones that are too different and you you lose audiences with both <laughs> you know with both traps yeah i mean i don't know why maybe i don't i don't know what <laughs> beyond the fact that that it's kind of a I don't know. Not really post-apocalyptic, but for some reason, my mind keeps going back to those uh, Planet of the Apes films and just how different uh, the tone of each of those three films is, and yet how uh, good. I mean, especially the first and the third are just like such great films, and they 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 maintain some kind of continuity, um, but they're really really different. <laughs> And and yet work. What it's the only thing it's going to have to do for me the sequel is this last round. I spent so much time watching John Krasinski's face. Oh, His face in every scene that he's in is how I feel every day raising teenagers <laughs> without monsters, but but raising teenagers. Oh, in don't, a, don't. my my young my oldest is heading. <laughs> Close and yeah. die on the brink of entering teenager dumb. <laughs> and and those things like I just want to be normal. I want to go out on my own. I want to do some stuff on my own. And being the par- parent who wants to say it's not safe, and also knowing that the very last thing that you can really do as a parent is say it's not safe. So you you can't go out. It has to be. I have to train you to survive going out there and it's different stuff right it is um having kids having their friends disclose uh, thoughts of self-harm um you know coming through a cell phone well i don't want you to have a cell phone okay well then how are you going to learn how to use a cell phone like all of those kinds of things i think are wrapped up in it and it's like you will go out there and you will eat something and get food poisoning and i will not be able to help you right you will go out there and get in a car accident and i will not be able to help you and so I, I remember writing in my journal about 18 months ago, I was like, how are my kids going to survive the world? And then I just paused for a minute and then skipped a line in my journal and wrote the same way you did by screwing up all the time. And I was like, oh, cool. That is way more sound and wise than I am in almost any other aspect of my life. So that was a gift. But that's so. If there's a sequel, that film has to invoke that stuff in me again, and I'll be all there. Yeah. If it's just like, hey, there's monsters that can't see what they can hear, I'm out. That's not interesting to me. It needs to be what is the evolution of this telling a story about parents again? And I don't know. Maybe that's going to be too repetitive. Maybe it needs to be something else. But for me, the only reason that I love this film, aside from its kind of technical prowess, is the fact that it made me really, 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 really think about who I am and what the heck I'm doing. I th- I think it was my I think it was my brother Adam who's who's the one who showed it to me who said watching the film made him want to be a better father, <laughs> which oh, yeah. is not what you go to see horror suspense films you know that you hear have monsters in them like that's not what you're going in there to get but i think that is what you get from this film is like if you have kids you want to be a better parent after like not just a better father but i I think any parent is going to want to protect their kids more raise them better (laughs) strengthen their bonds with them deepen their bonds uh correct mistakes that you've made as a parent and uh, forgive mistakes they've made as as children because you watch this film like you want to be a better uh you know part of a family unit and not 
and not because it's a bad example. I think <laughs> I think there are lots of times where we go to the where we go to the movies and we walk out and we go, "Man, I'm so glad I'm not like them." Yeah, like the <laughs> like Shining, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, there's something so aspirational about about this film and and the and the parents and and for me, I'm maybe j- probably just because you know I'm a dad, but that John Krasinski character is so compelling and i can't remember the last time that i saw um a a father portrayed like that who's he's strong and he's masculine and he's human and he has um he has flaws and he has a kind of a, a strained relationship with his daughter because of this huge tragedy that happened but he's also uh caring and um he's affectionate romantic with his wife like there's just so much uh, in him that that I aspire to be like, uh, and I it, it's it's the thing in this film. People say, "Why do you really?" We had some friends the other day, and I said, "Why do you like a quiet place?" And I said, "It is the best representation of fatherhood and masculinity that I have seen in film in I don't know how long." Like it's, I, I can't, I, I, nothing comes to mind right now that, the that, that compares. It's just astounding. Devotion. I just wrote that down while you were talking, Todd. That's what it feels like this film is about. Yeah. And I would, I, 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 I think what you wrote in your journal is beautiful. I would also kind of push back on it a, a little bit and say, your kids are going to learn how to how to live in the world because you are going to teach them. Like they're not just they're not blind in this, and he, you are their father, and you're a good father, and you're trying hard to teach them, and and you're going to mess up a bunch, just like they're going to mess up a bunch. But you have a you have a role in this. I was I was talking to somebody the other day. They were talking, oh, the kids these days they're all just so amazing. It was a, a, an older gentleman. They're all so amazing, and they've got all their smartphones, and they know how to do. They can organize and go and and uh, and and march for the environment. And what could I possibly uh, give to them? And I said, they need you. They need you so bad. They need all of us. We have something to give them. And it takes a lot of work and we're going to mess up a whole bunch of times, but, um, but kids need parents. <laughs> they really do. And they need parents to protect them and they need parents to teach them in spite of our flaws. Well, you're kind. They also need parents who can step back. Yeah. And I think that's mm-hmm. the, that's the other thing about all this. I, there, there's some key moments, you know, like when they go fishing, and the mom says, he is trying to make sure you know how to take care of me when he's gone. That's like great foreshadowing. But it mm-hmm. also is like, that's kind of what we're doing all the time, right? It's like the job of parenting, parenting is to prepare for our absence from their lives. And this is this will sound all crazy. A friend of mine um, does a lot of um, kitten foster care. They rescue them, spay, neuter them, whatever, and then get these uh, – kittens to uh families that want them and she said a whole bunch of them now are done and ready to leave her house and it's really breaking her heart and then she's finished up this little social media post by saying the goal is goodbye (laughs) 
and that that plus watching this film and getting ready to think about it and all this stuff it all just kind of swirled together in this really sort of intense cocktail like yeah that's that's right the the beautiful sad terrifying thing about being a parent is that the goal is goodbye go go out and live your life and be awesome and i think that's what this movie is about like krasinski cannot continue to be with them because it has to show us like are they ready to go on without him? He set everything up for them to be successful at the next stage. Yeah, the, like that is his success is not being needed, <laughs> like not being integral to yeah. the group's success. That that it, is you know how it's he the has miser- it's the miserable, beautiful truth of our lives is the goal. The goal is to not be needed. It's the, the to me. It's like the it's the one two emotional punch at the end so there's the moment of sacrifice where where he screams and and saves his kids but then you get this second echo of that in the basement with with the with the implants and that it's been his effort like this dogged um effort to try to help his daughter to be able to hear and and trying and failing and you can see all the different failed prototypes of these things and all of the research that he's done it i don't suspect that he was a an audiologist before <laughs> uh, before the um this apocalypse happened uh and yet you see it's like his last offering uh again it's where like you said he set up everything for them uh to be successful and um, I just think there's something really beautiful now. Yes, we have to let our kids go. Yes, the goal is goodbye. Uh, but m- as long as we have them here, uh, we have to keep trying and try really hard. <laughs> and that's to, what he says to her when she, he's like, I'm going to do this again. And she says, just give up and never works. And he says, we're going to keep trying till it works. Yeah. It's awesome. Guys, I feel like we could keep going for another full episode's worth of discussion, but I think we have to call it here. <laughs> this is a really good movie. If you have not seen it, it is streaming on Hulu right now. I, I know. Uh, so if you have Hulu, it is on Amazon Prime as well. Yeah, it, I, that's where I saw it today. All right. So there's a couple streaming options out there. Um, I, this is, in the last several years, like one of the films that stuck with me the most. Uh, that, that That's come out. And... I think it's for a lot of the reasons that we've mentioned uh, in terms of its production side, but then also in, in the thematic heft that they embody within all that production side uh, that make the film special. It's something that's going to be like just uh, trickling through film schools forever. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it, it's, it's always going to be, someone's going to be showing it in a film school somewhere always. <laughs> uh, all right. That's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows. You can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English who designed our logo and Scott Tofty who composed our theme music. Uh, if you uh, would like to reach us, you can email feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonist pod or at Jay Dorowski and our producer, Andrew is at Diz minute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. Thank you, Todd and Todd for joining us. Todd Peterson, do you want to plug your book one more time? Yeah, I have a really fun book that I kind of talked about in the episode called it needs to look like we tried. It's about stories that are connected to stories that are connected to stories. Um, and I've just wrapped up another one that, uh, I pitched, uh, as Fargo in the four corners, 
Um, it's a little bit of a, a crime comedy about stealing uh, Native American pots. I don't know if that sells it. <laughs> but anyway, keep your eyes peeled for that. It's called Picnic in the Ruins, and it's, you, we should probably see it out in a year or so. All right, and uh, thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. So long. Sure, just uh, if you see any weird sentence constructions, just fix them for me, as I always do when I'm reading my own plot summary. Of course. <laughs> okay, yeah, like, let's, uh, let's give your voice a break.